0: at that level talking to the world right 10 or 20 years from now just feel
1: and you've done you a lot of handwritten
0: today is uh, September 11th uh, 1992 and uh, I'm sitting um, in uh, the office of Guy Martin in Washington DC and uh, back in uh, uh, 1971 72 and several years thereafter, I guess until his death, right? You yeah, on yeah. Until his death, uh, Mr. Martin was um, the principal aide to uh, Congressman Nick Begich of Alaska for the land claims issue. And I guess the, f- the easiest way to s- get into it all is uh, since, obviously, someday there'll be somebody listening to this tape that doesn't know how famous you and I are now, <laughs> so maybe a short biography of, of who you are and how you got to Alaska and how you got hooked up with uh, Congressman Begich, and how you found yourself uh, working for him in uh, 1971.
1: Uh, I, I graduated from the University of Colorado School of Law in 67, uh, and uh, my overriding ambition was to ski and uh, be around mountains. So uh, I applied to various places to teach, and uh, Alaska went out, and I went up to Alaska Methodist University, became a political science professor. And started practicing law with Ellen McGrath, sort of simultaneously. And uh, one of the issues that I started to pick up on was the land claims. And as about the only professor of political science on the scene at the time in Alaska, there were a couple with the U of A and down there. I I sort of got called to either talk about the war or the land claims. So over a period of time, when Begich got elected in the fall of '69, um, he came down. I not only did not know him well, I'm sorry, I elected to the to the House, to the U.S. Know, house. That it's, would have been 70, right? I, I'm sorry, in 70, excuse right. me, in the fall of 70. I not only really didn't know him well, but I had, as I recall, worked for John Rader in the primary, and then worked for Nick as a Democrat, but in a pretty... Non-visible role. I worked. I think Wendell mm-hmm. Kay ran in that election. No, I Right. All well, my efforts are sort in '70.
0: Yeah. Well, Wendell was running against Ted Stevens yeah. for the Senate seat, exactly. and I worked in
1: the K campaign. And uh, uh, so uh, Bob Zellick, at the same time, had wrapped up his work with the uh, uh, with a, a ton of news up there. Came down to write a book, this fiction book that he was going to write, which ultimately Never got published. And he knew Nick, and when mm-hmm. Nick was searching mm-hmm. around for somebody to, uh, yeah. you don't know, need there. They'll uh, pick it Nick, um, uh, Zelnick recommended to Nick that I would be the one to come down and help him. So he called and offered me the job, and we said, what the hell, and moved to Washington. Okay, now did,
0: uh, when he called and offered you the job, did he specifically say that the job was working on native claims, or was it just to, ju- I specifically... Well, it was his, it'd
1: be, it was to be his principal legislative assistant, okay. but the, but obviously the, the mission, which was quite clear to him and quite clear to me, was that he felt that that was the Congress that had to pass the land claims, and he basically featured He said, look, that's the deal. I mean, we're going to pass the land claims uh, as far as I'm concerned, and that's the main mission we've got we're here. Okay. Now, he
0: uh, did he, at, uh, at that time, which was right at the beginning of the process, he obviously had never been in Congress before. I mean, he would learn a lot, as yeah. you would, as you guys went on, but do you recall that what his view of the whole situation was at that time? Now, let me preface that by saying you may recall that that in, or in, uh, you may not recall, but in, in December of 69, when the when the Senate had finally started to chew into this thing, uh, there had been a massive white backlash in Alaska, and and Keith Miller, who was governor, had, had completely reversed the, the Hickel policy, which was really quite generous, and had said, you know, not a dollar of state money and not a state acre, and and I get the impression from reading the clips that in 69 and 70, which would have been the environment in which Nick was running for office, that there had been this sort of massive white backlash, and they were obviously the majority of Nick's electorate that had elected him. So yeah, with that as, as I, a
1: preface to... I don't, yeah, um, First of all, just a recollection of the campaign, that's sure not... I mean, I was obviously involved with Wendell Kaye and to some extent with Nick in the campaign. And I, I don't have exactly the same recollection of, of at least their campaigns being at all indebted to sort of the white backlash crowd. I mean, it, they certainly were not like pro-native, pro-settlement sort of uh, sympathizers, but uh, there wasn't a doubt in my mind that Nick saw his role during the campaign and spoke during the campaign about the settlement, that the se- settlement had to be made. I Every, remember everybody knew at that time that uh, you had you had the discovery of Prudhoe Bay. You had the pressure on to uh, you know to deal with the settlement at some point, and um, so there was uh, you know I think a fair amount of sentiment. I don't recall Nick ever indicating sort of a pro backlash sentiment. And when he talked to me on the phone, I remember specifically the call. And uh, I mean, he said, "Look, I'd really like you to come down. I think this is a, and it's a great time for Alaska. The settlement is you know." Begetz was a kind of a problem solver type guy. Not a not a, a a great philosopher, but a guy who saw political objectives and sort of overcame them. And he just saw the claims as a political objective. It was sort of one of the missions that he was
0: going to do it. Okay, well, in that regard, I guess maybe another way to ask the same question in a different way is that is that that's also what Lloyd Meads told me. He Lloyd told me that he thought that Nick was a much better politician than he lead than he Meads was. You know in a very complimentary way, I don't think he was kidding. But uh, but so on the one level, obviously this is a political objective that because of Pluto Bay and everything else that's going on in Alaska we have to accomplish this. And then there's sort of the underlying philosophy of why we're doing it. And, and for lack of a of uh, two better polls, there's sort of the sort of the Fred Paul, uh, you know Aboriginal title. This is a land. This is a real estate transaction. Aboriginal title is almost like fee title, and that's what this is about. And then there's what I call the Arthur Goldberg approach, which is I don't know anything about that, but these poor natives, you know, they, social justice. Yeah, social justice. They don't really have any electricity, and they, you know, and they don't just sort of a, they have a bad lot in life, and they've been mistreated, and so just because we're liberal Democrats, we ought to help them out a little bit. And here's how we can do it. Do you do you have any sense of at the beginning where Nick would have fallen on that spectrum?
1: You know, I'd say on that spectrum, probably closer to the social justice side, because Nick was not a, a legal scholar, or, nor did he invest a lot of time in sort of the legal issues behind it, but he really had a little bit different spin on it. Begich basically saw the claims as sort of an item of business. It was like you, you solve these problems one at a time as you move through the state continuum. And it was just clear to him that all of the blocks that started falling in line, that this just simply had to be solved at some point. And if he had still been around, you know, as the pipeline came up, he would have just seen that as sort of the next, the next deal. And so uh, I don't really think he spent a lot of time agonizing over social justice or agonizing over the legal niceties. He basically was always trying to find the, the sort of the practical route to solve the problem. Okay. Well, now.
0: You said that he called you and offered you the job. He would then, I assume, was already back?
1: He was, he was here. here and had been here for probably, uh, well, maybe a month or something. I can't remember exactly when I came, but it had to be in February or so. Okay, so so then you
0: got, you came down after actually, technically Congress, the new Te- Congress technically had started. Technically started, yeah. okay. what did, uh, In terms of getting the lay of the land, did, did uh, Nick get you in his office and say, here's our task operationally for... Uh, this year, we got to do this with the... I mean, you, you, well, let, me, let me back that up. Had you had any prior experience other than a high school civics book on how Congress worked and the difference between Mr. Aspinall and Mr. Haley and what the suspension calendar was and the rules
1: committee? Well, did you know about that yeah, stuff? Yeah, I did. And and I, I was actually, I mean, in that sense, a pretty good choice because I had... Um, uh, I mean, I'd been teaching American government that, I mean, I, you know, took political science in college, went to law school, then went up and taught political science uh, at AMU for three years, give or take. Taught all those courses, including teaching a course uh, in, like, I can't remember what it was called, Alaska Public Issues, in which the land claims and a bunch of other issues that were timely uh, were, were discussed. We had, even had a field trip to the legislature each year, which I led, and we took people down. And, I had even matched people up with baggage over the three years in the legislature, as well as matching up with people like C.R. Lewis and and others (laughs) to work with. I, incidentally, as a parenthetical, matched up Randy Phillips with C.R. Lewis in Randy Phillips' first political experience. (laughs) (laughs) We're still paying for that one. Um, But if you're
0: listening to this tape 20 years from now, it's worth doing the research to figure out what all happens. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, And uh, Rick Halford, another one of those uh, graduates. Uh, and then, uh, I also had grown up in Colorado, so say that I know who Wayne Aspinall is. I sure did. And uh, so I, I had actually, a, 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 I could hit the ground running about as well as anybody who came down in that situation. Okay. Well, well, when you got in that, also,
0: what, were you guys in Longworth, or
1: where did We were in Longworth, and uh, Nick was uh, in 1324, which was the oh. office that the Alaskans had for a long time, and kept. And then at that time we had a separate annex. I was a floor up or something, and then the next year I think we moved down. Oh, okay. So. So, uh, so he was right. Was the committee still where it is today? Well, or the no? committee is where it was, and uh, yeah, pretty much pretty similar. Okay. Well, what uh, when you got
0: here, then did uh, did Nick sit you down in the office and sort of explain what we're going to
1: do here? Uh, was there a plan or how how did well, you guys view your situation? First of all, Nick's style was was really pretty interesting. I mean, he he was one of these priority guys. He had lists and his first 25 priorities were all service-oriented. And as you recall, he had a, a, uh, an administrative assistant who had been his longest time political ally, Gene Kennedy. And Gene was just a pure kind of democratic ally who had a level of personal dedication to Nick which I've never seen equal even in the most, you know, the, the closest of relationships on Capitol Hill. I mean, the dedication is continues to this day, 20 years after his death. and. Uh, Gene now living up in uh, Massachusetts. Gene was dedicated to constituent service, just as Nick had been throughout his time in the legislature when Gene had also served. And so his first 20 priorities were all constituent service. I mean, how are we going to answer letters? How are we going to get reports and press releases back to people and so on? So the land claims as a substantive policy issue clearly at the beginning loomed behind any of those service and constituent issues. And I remember all of my first several um, sort of meetings and work with Nick on things were all dedicated to setting up systems and working with Gene on systems to get all of our core. I was the sort of the, I was the supervising legislative assistant of over three or four people who were substantially more junior to me. I mean, in terms of experience, some hired in Washington, some from Alaska, and so we had to set up who would correspond on what, how they would do it, how the reporting would work what our policies were, get basic policy Land claims just kind of set there. And when we finally got around to it, Nick clearly identified the land claims as one of, you know, I'm guessing five, six, ten issues that were critical. But that getting a Settlement Act bill through was clearly his, I think, his top legislative priority. But the other priorities were things like a list of public works projects that ranged all the way from post offices to bridges and he fought to get on the public works committee where his friend John Blotnick was chairman um, he um, and f- obviously fought to get on interior so public works projects were high on his list there were a variety of education issues that were high on his list including military education issues which he had come from the on-base schools and so the land claims it wasn't like everything was swept aside he land claims was just sort of an issue, but it was a clear one, and I guess I'd be hard pressed to actually remember um, an early sort of strategy section where he said, "Here's my plan of attack on the land claims." That did come, but not not early. Okay. Well, the first thing obviously that does happen,
0: uh, you know, that you guys come into a into a procedural situation that has a long history because of the whole. I mean, not only long in terms of going back to the '40s to settle land claims, but but even in '69 and '70, obviously there had been a big push that had ended dismally in the right. in the clutches of Wayne Aspinall only only months before. So you weren't going to be writing on a on a blank slate. And, and the major thing that happened in the in the spring of '71, obviously, was was the lobby which was going on off you guys, I assume, right, uh, with respect to the administration and getting the president committed to a
1: right.
0: a 40 million acre bill. And so that raises, I think, the the uh, next logical question, and that is, did did Nick have, going in, a, a strong, substantive view on you know, 40 million acres versus 10 million acres, or the 2% royalty versus a 1% royalty, or a, or a village settlement versus a statewide corporation, or was he just looking at it more as a
1: generic issue? He, he, I think his basic attitude was that he, without so much thinking of it as a pro-Native issue, he thought it was a kind of a pro-Alaska issue. And he, I mean, I, I know he always figured he just really wanted to get the most he could for the natives. Right. But not didn't, didn't feel like he ought to be a guy saying, well, they ought to get 30 million acres instead of 40 million acres, or 33 instead of 40. I mean, it, he just basically rode with that. And, but always, I think, when, when pressed, uh, except when there were trade-offs to be made, supported sort of a generous settlement rather than a, than a pecuniary settlement, and, and advocated that wherever he could. Okay. Well, uh, was my I just realized that when I asked the last question, I engaged
0: in an assumption, which I guess I should test, and that is, I had assumed that that you guys, uh, that major AFN lobby that, that was successful down at the White House took place in in January, February, March of '71. I I had assumed
1: that you guys were not in any way involved in that, and maybe I should ask that. Uh, do you recall? I don't. You know, I don't think we were. I mean. At that point, I remember it's a little hard to remember all these personalities, but obviously, when all those people were in town, they were always in the office, seeing themselves, introducing themselves. A lot of them, of course, knew Nick. I mean, from the legislature, and guys like Hensley and people like that who were on scene were his roommates and you know friends. Uh, but uh, at the legislature, but um, I don't I don't recall Nick making any calls. Nick spent. I'll tell you what Nick spent that time doing, and it was really interesting. And he did this primarily for the land claims, but also for all this stuff, is Nick understood the legislative game incredibly well. And he spent all that time doing as many favors as he could for as many people. And I remember at one point he set out to meet, I think it was either every member of the House, or to meet every Democratic member personally. And he literally had an agenda that he followed in which he would spend time each day going to the offices of other members and meeting them personally and talking to them or going over and he'd have a little card in his pocket with a group of people mm-hmm. on it and he, he... one of the questions he asked him is what are your priorities and what are you interested in? How can I help you? With every... I'm not sure if Republicans over the or f- Democrats... He'd go over the
0: floor and... He'd go over the floor and he'd
1: have a list and it'd be like a group of people on it and he'd say, today I'm going to get, you know, Ed Schmedley from uh, New Jersey and I'm going to find out what he's up to. and who he is and he'd come back and say, I met him, he's a pretty nice guy, or I met him, he's stupid, or something like that. And then he'd make notes and he had all these notes and he'd figure out what their issues were and he had very complicated notes and systems so he knew what he could do to help people when he could do it. And he, he created so many he created so many acquaintances and so many uh, sort of favors during that period. And some of those people, like John Dellenbach from Oregon, for instance, who was a, a moderate to progressive Republican on the committee, um, and Meads, of course, who he slightly knew at that point began to become pretty good friends and later became, you know, critical allies in, in this thing. Huh. Well, you know, that's just as a total aside, you realize that that's exactly the
0: analysis and the approach and the energy that Lyndon Johnson brought to bear when he came to Congress. Yeah. You
1: know, and exactly. Yes. Yeah. Well, Nick was unparalleled, and, and uh, even now when I meet people uh, who were there, they say they've never met anybody who had a higher level of energy, a higher level of sort of willingness to, to sort of engage in the minutiae of government and, and people's problems in order to gain his own ends. And and he, he, he'd say it, he'd come back and he'd say, hey, I met this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy today, and guess what? This guy wants to you know build a highway from Muskegon to somewhere. And he said, he said I can help him do that with John. And, and it, he was delighted whenever he discovered there was some little thing he could do for somebody because he knew he was going to cash all those chips later on and he was going to just incur as many as he could. Hmm.
0: Well, that's... And he
1: so he spent a lot of that time just working the Congress over. But I don't recall him calling the White House. Now, obviously, we had uh, we had uh, Interior Department and White House, you know, congressional liaison guys. I'm not positive of this, but I think even from the beginning, Frank Wolf, who's now a senator from Virginia, was the Interior liaison. I, what I can't remember if he was there he must have been there right when we got there. And Frank, uh, Frank. Um, uh, was around a lot, and Nick worked him over on these issues all the time. Well Now, uh, actually, before I get to taking that process into the
0: committee, uh, what was his relation at that point with uh, Stevens and Gravel? Obviously, Stevens had was not of his party, and had and had finally been elected. Cross staggers across the finish line after all these years, finally elected in his own right to the Senate in '70. Right. And uh, and then there's obviously Gravel, who was, of course, Gravel. <laughs> right. Who baggage had been within the legislature, I assume. Uh, do you recall, they, were yeah. they coordinating a land claims approach at, in the spring of 71, or was Nick pretty much on his own, do you think?
1: Let me think. Um, when they came, putting a land claim aside, when they came, there actually were some early attempts to have some delegation meetings. And those may have continued into that first year, but. They clearly phased out in any practical sense after not too long, and it sort of devolved. And and it, the administrative assistance also didn't really meet. There wasn't any reason to, so it ultimately kind of devolved on the legislative assistance. Now Doug Jones was clearly there for Gravel, and I'm trying to remember. Well, Gats was there. The was game. he right, right at the beginning? I was trying to. Yeah. Remember if he was there right yeah, at
0: the beginning? He he moved over. Uh, he said he he walked out of the Longworth building just about the same time that Pollock did, which was was December of seventy. That's I guess that's and, right. And
1: cats and, and Ted picked him up immediately. Immediately, so, so, he, so he was starting on the Senate then at the same time, and so very quickly. I mean, because Katz the world's easiest guy to get along with, and Doug Jones similarly. We we immediately locked on it. So within literally weeks, if not you know days. We, we had established relationships and um, began to talk about it. And by far, the most meaningful uh, sort of policy discussions of land claims took place there. I mean, there's no question in my mind that, that uh, Begich and Gravel and Stevens weren't spending that much time together thinking about the big issues. <laughs> but we did. I mean, we talked about it a lot. And um, Bagich and so as relationship goes from the even though they had some delegation meetings, from the go, uh, Begich and Gravel talked and consulted, but were not warm and were not, you know, they didn't talk to each other in any meaningful way about these issues. So there was did, no. Did Peggy did,
0: and Rita and, and the two of them go out and flop burgers never together? Heard never house. heard. It, never heard of it.
1: Never heard of it. Never heard of it. Although it could have happened, but, but I very not heard. as a regular. They weren't like social. No. I was trying to remember where Mike lived at that time. Begich lived in McLean. And I don't remember where Mike lived. Um, And uh, with Stevens, and and Nick didn't deride Gravel, but from the go there was a sort of a somewhat competitive independence between them. It wasn't dislike or anything. It was just separation. And with uh, Stevens, Baggage was highly partisan, and whenever there were partisan issues up, I mean, it was really contentious. But by and large, he—he, he, you know, Ted Ted talked. I can remember Ted picking up the phone and calling Baggage or vice versa. I don't remember that happening very much with gravel They talked, and Ted would say, "Here's what I'm doing, and can you help me do this?" Or this delegation's here. You want to do this? But uh, that didn't happen much with the gravel Okay. Well,
0: in terms of. Uh sort of going back to the chronology, uh, assuming that uh, the White House is doing its thing. Actually, there's no reason, by the way, that I can think of that Begich would have had any use at the White House anyway. Nobody Democrat, who cares, what does the White House care what he thinks about 40 million acres. But but if he's spending the spring sort of smoozing in general, uh, just to get himself established in the Congress as a whole, obviously the most important schmoozing he has to do is is uh, on the committee itself and and what was his approach um, well, actually what's the best way to ask this in series i guess what well, might be the best way to do it what what was what was his assessment of where he was of aspinall and haley and what their attitude was and and the rest of the other prominent members of the committee say or
1: well he's he uh, i mean basically the the description i gave you of what he did in the house was like triple when it came to the to the interior committee and the public works committee i mean he was indefatigable in attending every hearing making every vote being there to make the quorums figuring out what these guys wanted and cooperating you know and making sure that he was there to make sure a hearing looked good for some other member i mean top to bottom every guy on that committee baggage was over there trying to do favors for him with a lot of emphasis on aspinol and he 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 immediately i can remember at the very beginning. I mean, he knew exactly what he was dealing with. Aspinall was a, 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 a cranky, arrogant uh, guy who was very jealous of his prerogatives and liked the way the committee, w- the committee was run dogmatically, and Aspinall liked that fine. And Begich just tried to accommodate that in every way he could. I mean, he was the world's nicest guy, but I remember he would come back to the office and just sort of laugh at Aspinall's... Uh, you know, peccadilloes and his sort of his way of acting and all this crazy, archaic stuff that they were doing, and, but he just never crossed them. He did everything he wanted. And at the same time, he was he, you know, he was cultivating these friendships, and it was fairly early on. I mean, he as oh, yes, to Haley, I mean, he picked Haley up pretty early as a guy who didn't have a great deal of goodwill for Indians in general and uh, was just sort of going to be a problem, but... Nevertheless, just kind of continued to work with him, supported him on everything he could, cast votes that clearly were not his votes in committee, but those committee votes were lost. You know, They were they were just throwaway votes, and he supported him on stuff. And um, got to know the staff down there. With Meads, I remember fairly early, I, I don't know that anybody ever exactly figured this out, but it was quite clear to Nick and quite clear to me that Begich had to be the congressman for Alaska and not the congressman for the natives. And there were there were real discussions about how to do this. And I'm sorry, discussions with you be, or Nick? Or w- between, or between me and, and, and Nick. And well, that's what I don't know. And it would be
0: worth asking Why well, I'll tell you the answer to the question. I asked him that this yeah. morning. And he said almost exactly, it's interesting, he said almost exactly that, except he said that we never talked about it. He that's going to be my guess. He said, yeah. I understood early on that Nick had political problems at home with this. So he says, "You know, this was quite controversial in the non-native community." You know, and I said, "Well, yeah, I <laughs> know." And he said, "I could do things that Nick couldn't," and we almost did a good cop, bad cop thing. And and I and that was my next question. I said, "Did you guys ever like have lunch and talk about the politics of this and and the various roles that the two of you could play with Aspinall and, and publicly yeah. in terms of, of being a real advocate for the AFN forces?" And, and he said, "No, we never did. We never, to, my, to his recollection, they never ever had a discussion." Which obviously, one explanation for that is they're both
1: professional politicians, and they didn't. The guys in that game don't have to have that. Yeah, discussion. they communicated. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, but that would have been my guess. I never, I never saw him have anything approaching that. And uh, Meach had a, a really good legislative assistant named Steve Sander, uh, who I think later went on and worked for the Forest Service, not down at Interior. And uh, he was good. He was smart. He was a guy from out in that district. And Steve like like these other guys, you know, we had a real tight staff relationship, and Steve and I understood that role completely and talked about it. I mean, in the not every day, but I mean it was understood that Lloyd had to be the advocate pushing for the extra, you know, the extra pound for the natives on this, and Nick had to be the temporizer who sort of tried to represent the best interests of the state. And it gave Nick really a an ideal platform. The biggest problem there was, to be honest with you, was not Nick's politics in Alaska, although that was a huge problem. The biggest problem was Aspinall, because Aspinall was, to say the least, uncharitable toward the the merits of the native claims. He saw it as a kind of a nuisance issue that he that was clearly there, was clearly going to be insisted on, uh, that he had to do it. But Nick perceived from the beginning that he had to get it from Aspinall with sugar instead of vinegar. And so he basically, I mean, putting it in the simplest way, sort of kissed up to Aspinall for two years. Uh, rarely using anything even approaching political force or muscle and always using kind of the cooperative get-along-to-go-along technique whereas Meads could sort of be the guy waving his arms and yelling and saying social justice for the natives. And uh, Aspinall is really the much larger problem for baggage. I mean, once that was done, Nick could explain it at home. Well, that's interesting.
0: What about about, uh, the Republican Members that mattered: Saylor, <clears throat>
1: Stiger. Steiger? was sort of a. Uh, 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 Saylor was sort of a. Uh, he he reminded me in a way of John Dingell. You know, he was kind of a bully, a blustery bully, kind of guy. Uh, he loved this kind of environmental image he had, and uh, you know, he did some things that were, that were you know, very advocative of environmental interests in Alaska, and. Uh, but he was a, you know, he was a kind of, Nick understood him, because Saylor was a kind of a public works Republican, you know, he was a guy who wanted to take the pork home. And uh, he was just difficult to deal with as a personality. And I I can't really say that Nick ever did well with Saylor. I mean, Saylor was always somebody who was sort of a problem. And thanks to the administration, I mean, they handled a lot of that. And I remember Frank Wolf, for example, handling Saylor a lot. Steiger was. Um, sort of more interesting. I mean, he was a real, real conservative. I mean, God, he was a tough son of a gun. And uh, he was, at various times, pretty, uh, I mean, really sort of racist about that bill. And maybe that's too strong a word to use, but he sure as hell anti, anti-settlement in a lot of ways. And was just one of those guys who, who had to be, uh, over a period of time, sort of overcome. And uh, the mood of that committee I was trying to compare it that committee was different in the sense that um, they tried to be cooperative, but a little bit like it is right now, There's a pretty strong. there was a pretty strong ability to just overcome the minority when they had to on things, and they did on a few.
0: Huh.
1: Okay, well, the one guy left that we haven't talked about
0: at, before we start into what we did with him, of course, or what you guys did to the committee process, is uh, Lou Ziegler. And, yeah. And uh, uh, I guess the... Doing that in series, I guess we'll be, as a staff level, you were the guy more than Baggage. I should have had to deal with yeah. Lou. And how did you view Lou's attitude about about Indians in general, Alaska in particular? Was he smart, stupid, good draftsman?
1: Right. Well, he was. Um, uh, I mean, he was really an interesting guy. He, he, he first of all, he was very smart. Uh, he was very detail oriented. He was a. He was, a, I mean, a good draftsman in the technical sense, I mean, in the sense that this guy really could write legislation uh, that was highly detailed. Whether or not he was really a good legal scholar and could see the problems that some of his drafting did, I think is another issue. Um, but he was meticulous. Uriah Heap, you know, I'm sure anybody who describes him, you know, he was a clerk, I mean, the guy was a green eye-shaped guy. He was a great but he had a lot of ideas. I mean, a lot of strong ideas, and he understood Wayne Aspinall very well. And Aspinall trusted him. I mean, tremendously. And of course, the committee system at that point was closed in the sense that the committee markups were not not only not open to the public, they were not open to the staffs of the members. And so, um, uh, if you had a complicated issue, the only people that went in the markups were the members and the committee staff. And even not all the committee staff could wander in freely. I mean, they just sort of said who they wanted in there to help them out, and so there might have only been one or two or three committee staff guys in the room there, uh, might maybe more. And um, on a couple of occasions, I, I had this. They, they treated us as a great honor that I actually went into these markups because there were issues that were so uh, I can't remember what they were now, but they were so esoteric that Nick sort of insisted that we do this, and so I'm mean, going to help out. But 98 percent of the time. I didn't even go in the markups, and Alaska, the natives, and Alaska was very lucky, because uh, actually, Nick gained a lot of ground in those, because he was so smart and so detail-oriented himself that he was one of the few members who could actually conquer in there. He could go in and actually get what he wanted, whereas the average member who didn't read things and wasn't very good at it got snookered by Aspen on a staff. So Ziegler, you had to do everything with Ziegler outside of those sessions and get everything nailed down and so what I did with him was kind of a mini version of Ziegler and since I'm not much of a shrinking violet this was a very difficult role for me but I basically spent hours kissing up to Lou Ziegler I mean just just fundamentally acquiescing and going along with things helping him on other projects uh, and spending hours literally spending hours sitting at his elbow going through a bill where he was sort of he treated it as if he was sort of at his sufferance allowing me to sit there while he wrote and sort of marked of up the bill and, the and to learn from and occasionally offer advice. And, and, in fact, what happened is I was able to, you know, have a tremendous impact by just – he wasn't dumb. He would pick – he would do him, he would change things, and then I would give him comments, and he would take them. He understood there was some of that, but fundamentally the relationship was, a, was the master and the apprentice rather than two staff members negotiating over a, over a bill. The end, well, we finally got all the way at the end, kind of at the end of a couple of years, it was a little bit better than that. But for a good part of it, I mean, you sort of were at sufferance. And as bad as that sounds, not very many other people even got to do that. Hmm. I mean, he just basically told them what he thought, and unless you could get somebody, a member, to blow him out uh, on something, then that was the way it would be. Hmm. And many of the little words in the bill, Ziegler just put them in, and that was that. Hmm. Well, uh, actually, with some of that generational, I was trying
0: to... I've never been able to figure out exactly how old Ziegler was. You must have been. Were you still in your
1: twenties? Well, or I any? was. Uh, so i have been seventy-one to two. I would have been. Yeah, I was 27, 28 years old. And how Ziegler must have been at that point about. I'm going to guess about fifty-five, or maybe even a little older than that. Maybe. Yeah, fifty-five is probably right. My. It's sort of it's hard to tell. It could have been anywhere from fifty to sixty-five, but. <coughs> It wasn't. He was very. He was friendly enough, but just kind of not very. It wasn't a matter of of like or dislike. I mean, he was perfectly friendly and perfectly supportive. But he he basically worked for an autocratic chairman, and he was an autocratic staff member, and that was just the way the world worked. That I was a little chicken shit junior staff member, even though we were working on a very important issue that he didn't have a lot of background in, but thought he could do it just as well as anybody else. And he, like every staff member, he had lots of views, and he. He had—I don't remember every position he had—but he had clear views on whether or not, uh, for instance, land should be selected around villages, or whether it should, you know, should be free floating. And he had clear views on how these corporations should be organized, and all of those issues, you know, working with the natives and others had to be sort of worked and worked and worked with him to get him to move. Uh, did he basically?
0: At that level of this project, did he have Aspinall's proxy and he knew it? I mean, unquestionably. So I mean, if, if he thought a corporation should be organized this way rather than that way, he made that decision and and uh, it was not a member decision, and that's why you were. Well, it's not it's used. not
1: clear to me how he consulted with Aspinall. I, I don't really know how much he got from Aspinall and how much he didn't. But he clearly, when by the time he was doing it, he was doing it the way he wanted to do it, whether based on Aspinall. No. Okay, and then the other thing about
0: that. Uh, before we leave Lou for a second, is that uh, this is all going on? Most of it in the subcommittee market. This is not full committee, right? But and but Ziegler is the main guy for the majority. But but he is actually Aspinall's man, not Haley's man. I mean, who is? God, guy? I'm trying
1: to think who Haley even had working on. I've never been able to see anybody that he did have anybody working on. It's you? certainly not anybody that I can think of, and he may. I mean. A- the committee staff was really just the committee staff. And and uh, I don't remember much minority presence on this. Okay. And But I mean, in terms of
0: who was really giving the orders here, the Ziegler was was in a political sense Aspinall's
1: man. He wasn't Haley's man, even though you were doing this thing in Haley's Absolutely. Sense. OK, well, I don't remember there was any subcommittee. I mean, it was subcommittee level, but okay. I don't remember there was any subcommittee presence on this bill. Or, okay. Well, Aspinall kind of did it. Right, except Haley, I mean, I, like
0: I've seen the, the raw transcript of the markets, yeah. and you know, it's technically Haley's. Oh, yeah, that's and, right. You know, he's running the meeting, and, and then of course he'll, I mean, it's really great, you read these transcripts, and he'll open the meeting and say, you know, I'm opening this meeting as the chairman of the subcommittee, now I'll call upon Mr. Asma, who will explain to us what we're going to do today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean that's exactly it. <laughs> and that's how it sort of went, but.
1: Um, it's well, not really, there's not really any comparison to the, those committees around now. Uh, Aspinall just ran the DM committee and that was that.
0: Okay, and I guess uh, before we get into actually what happened in that market, maybe that's another good thing to to put on the record and, and that is that under that old setup, which is a far cry from what we have today, is is that even if Aspinall did not have the votes, as it later turned out, uh, his displeasure with this project, he at least it's my assumption, he could have brought this whole thing down merely by just saying, I've had enough of this, you pushed me too far. Is that was that is that true, and was that a factor? in well, in pushing this as far as you could, but not so far that Aspinall broke. Uh, have I overstated? Yeah, that? I mean,
1: I'd say that was Nick's philosophy. I mean, you know the story about this whole discharge letter and all this business like that. Well, actually, I sort of don't, but I want to get to that yeah. in, in
0: a second. But but, but I mean, he, I guess sure. He he had, had, in the process, he had that Aspinall had that power,
1: independent of where the votes were in, in this process of committee chairman running everything. If he, yeah, if he had set out from the go to derail the land claims and sort of used all his power as chairman, no question about it. But once the bill really you know, came together and the constituencies, including the White House and others, kind of got, they got it, at that point he had probably... I mean, I guess he could have pulled out all the stops and stopped it somehow, cashed in his chips as chairman and everything else. But uh, at that point, I think he really did reach... reach uh, point, and Nick knew it, that he couldn't really stop it at that point. You know, Ziegler had worked so long, I mean, it was like as if he had cooperated in putting it together, and then the idea of not going forward was bullshit. No one was going to accept that. Okay. Well,
0: before we actually get into the to the markup, uh, the two folks that we really haven't talked about, one is what the natives were doing all this time, and what were the natives doing all this time. Uh, at that point, uh, just for setting the scene with the record, uh, Don Wright had been elected president of AFN. He had brought in Adrian Parmetter, who was who was um, uh, his sort of main guy. Uh, however, they sort of inherited Ramsey Clark and Eddie Weinberg and, and Kim Bass by that time uh, from, from the, from the Naughty administration. Uh, Jim Wickwire and Charlie Ederson are running around sort of independently of right. AFN. Uh, Barry Jackson wanders in and out of this intermittently um, how did you guys, how were you interacting with those guys? What did you think of their lobby at the time? What was happening with that?
1: How'd you go into the lobby? Um, it was real confusing, I remember, to try to sort through who represented what and whom during that time. And they were all there. I mean, you know, it's sort of the classic native lobby thing. I mean, They were all there all the time, it seemed like. And uh, some were more or less effective but a couple observations. One is there was a kind of a clear difference in Nick's Nick was again pretty political about this. So his first consideration was looking for locals. I mean he 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 looked at the whole crew of Washington lobbyists and outside lobbyists as pretty opportunistic and, and not altogether helpful. I mean he was he had great respect for Ramsey Clark because of other things he'd done and I mean Nick you know, understood that, but he looked at people who were from the state with an entirely different way than he looked at all these representatives. And so, for the most part, when he saw even people that he regarded as, I mean, first of all, Don Wright didn't command much respect for Nick because as I recall, Don Wright was a Republican, and Nick knew that, and he didn't think a lot of Don Wright, I mean, he just didn't have a high regard for him, and he certainly didn't agree with his politics. Barry Jackson had been a supporter of Nick's, and I believe he was a Democrat. But for reasons that are known best to people who know Barry Jackson very well, Nick didn't look forward to him coming in the office. I mean, it wasn't one of his favorite experiences to, <laughs> to, to see Barry Jackson coming in. And Barry perceived himself as, you know, the sort of the global representative of Native interests in a way that nobody else quite grasped but Barry. That was his portrayal of himself. He viewed himself as the father of this whole thing. Yeah, yeah know, in, a, right? in a very strange way, yeah. And uh, presented himself with a certain amount of, grandiose sort of uh feelings and it really came out very strange Uh, although he's not he was not a dummy i mean barry jackson knew a lot and so but nick even so even with that he always responded more positively and then there were other guys who were on the scene i mean hensley young hensley was around and byron the was around and then there were this whole cast of older native tribal more traditional leaders who would come in from time to time and amel and others and nick really thought well. Of, I mean, he really treated them like constituents. As to all of the representatives, uh, Nick, I think, had a sort of a, of a less close feeling. Now, and, he, and I know Nick, and I share with you, Adrian Parmer, we never saw it, I mean, he, he just, we couldn't understand why he was involved, I mean, it was just not clear to us what he did. He may have been much more effective with the administration or with Gravel or somebody, but it was not clear to us what he exactly did. And uh, it certainly didn't seem to have a lot of effect on, on, on Nick. Um, from my perspective, I saw it differently. I was obviously looking for the people who could give me the technical information needed to write a good bill. And from that perspective, the guys that Amel had worked with, you know, guys like Weinberg and Ken Bass in particular, and then some of the individual lawyers for the various Native groups, were really smart and really helpful, much more than the kind of the political crew that, that Don Wright brought in. So guys like Weinberg and uh, what's his name? Jeez, um, uh, Lefty. Uh, oh, uh, Weisbrod and his partner, whose name I can't recall right now, and and uh, Bass and uh, other people were really pretty helpful. I mean, Bass w- was. Wickwire, w- 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 same so. way. I mean, Weckwire's a guy who knew what the hell he was doing and and uh, you know had had great information and good good legal knowledge. And so he was with a group of maybe twenty lawyers or ten that really knew what they were doing, so they, I mean they were great. They could write things and give me information to use with Ziegler and with others and so on. Okay, well, so then how did, uh, I haven't really asked you yet, we're not
0: really into the process of that market yet, but when that started then, are you saying that at your, at your staff level you would meet with, with the Wickwire basses as, a, as technocrats and you'd take that information and you would be the funnel to Ziegler? Or well, did Ziegler provide an opportunity for all of those guys to come in and,
1: and do it, or, did, or was that well, all Well, they have right? the to answer, because I don't know, but I'll t- my perception of it is that Lou heard those guys out and looked at their paper, but he had a pretty keen, it wasn't that I was such a great guy, but he had a pretty keen focus on the idea that Nick Begich was the representative of Alaska and that that was where he was going to get his representative stuff. Now, there were always technical problems and questions to be answered about corporate law and things like that, where Ziegler was willing to take it, and to take it from anybody. Havelock, I mean, would be on, not, yeah, Havelock, yeah, Havelock was, was on the scene. I mean, he would state legal information, information, stuff like that. But fundamentally, it was it, it was getting it from Begich, or Begich's guy, me, that did it. So I think a lot came in that way, not so much because of me, but just how Ziegler treated it. And I, I remember being in meetings where those guys were there, and he saw them at Sufferance just like he saw me at Sufferance. I mean, it was never like, show me your draft. I'd like to see it. Maybe I can use it. That was not Ziegler's style, <laughs> uh, as cats I'm sure, could confirm. But um, so I think that's true. Um, so a lot of it had to come in that way. Now, obviously, Meads and Steve Sander were working on it, too, although he looked at them the same way. He looked at them and he said, first of all, he represents the Indians who are the beneficiaries here, and I'm not... Going to be quite as as tolerant of that. I'm talking about the dra- This the True. raw drafting. Now, in markup obviously Lloyd could have a, an effect because he and Nick would acquiesce in things that Lloyd wanted, which would be a pre you know a pregame plan to get Bill strengthened. So maybe other people will tell you. I don't know whether they did well with Ziggy, but I didn't get that feeling. Okay. Well, um,
0: when we then the then the last group, I think I'll get to the en- enviros a little later. But the last. Uh, Obvious folks uh, at the front end is was Bill Foster and the oil guys, right. and uh, they did not, as near as I can figure out, uh, you know, even though that had, David Wolf had gotten the injunction stopping the pipeline as early as April of '70, that that all through the previous Congress, uh, they never were on the scene. Much to my amazement, and, and it really wasn't almost until Congress adjourned that they organized Alleska and, and Ed Patton. Went to the Anchorage Chamber, I don't know if you remember this, in like October of 70, very late, saying, Oh, by the way, guys, no claim settlement, no pipeline. And everybody goes, Oh, now we understand. So
1: they were not really on the scene in
0: 70, and and it was really, in fact, I'm being together with Hugh Gallagher tomorrow afternoon, I think I mentioned Uh, it. By the beginning of the summer of 71, as you guys are going into that markup, uh, were they around, and what was the perceived relationship between this and the pipeline right away? And how did I, how was that uh, coming? Out?
1: Have you interviewed Bill yet? First no, I haven't yet. Yeah, I mean, I it, I can't remember the exact timing, but I mean, they Bill, you know, had been in Alaska, right, so he had an Alaska portfolio. Worked for Bartlett, had come up with the Legislative Affairs Agency, and so on. So he really had an Alaska portfolio, and he. They must have helped Nick in the campaign because pretty early on when I got there, Bill turned up. I'd never met him before. And we became, you know, good friends. Bill's Bill's a great lobbyist. In fact, I mean, I thought for years that he was sort of the model lobbyist. And Jack Ferguson, who, you know, later on, I mean, I literally think Jack sort of modeled a great deal of his whole style and approach after Bill. I mean, he just literally soaked up his style. and, And I think Jack would admit that. I mean, it's sort of a a part of it. He just sort of... Where's Ferguson of Foster from? Did he work with what? Is there a connection between Ferguson no. and Foster? No. Ferguson just came just in. around when Young, when Young came in, right. you know, he was there, and then they did right. the pipeline, and Foster did the pipeline, so they got right. to right. know exactly. each other, and then got Ferguson you. moved over, and so... But I mean, Jack just sort of soaked up his style and, and did it. But, uh, and it was a good, it's a good style, I mean, it was very effective, I mean, You got the right clients. And Bill had, you know, loads of money uh, uh, to work with, and not very many rules. Um, you know, at that time, not very restrictive, so I mean, he was there on the scene, and uh, Nick liked him, liked you know, as a former Alaskan, trusted him, and uh, Bill was always, didn't take much role in the, uh, I mean, the non-industry-related issues. Bill, I mean, he, he cared about it, and Bill supported the Natives. I mean, it wasn't a cynical thing, but I don't remember him taking much of a substantive role but he knew a lot of people on the committee and was very effective in working with them. So he was always there helping out getting things done. So Baggage was able to have Bill there as a very effective kind of supplemental doobie to to uh, help out with people. What you mean
0: help out I and mean to be able to actually go visit the members? Go, go visit after members. After certain decisions are made and to explain why this is
1: what we're going to do. Not so much is. to say you got to do this, you got to do that, but this is a bottom line issue with the natives or a bottom line issue with so-and-so. And, Most of the issues that came down really didn't matter to the oil industry, except as it kept the bill moving and and so on. And so, uh, I mean, I guess Bill will have to tell you what he actually did or what he impacted, but um, uh, he was very much on the scene and very much a part of the effort to sort of get it done. And, uh, although Hugh was there, Hugh was not up on the hill doing a lot of things, Uh, and uh, I don't remember others that were anything like Bill. I mean, he was sort of the guy doing it. Uh, uh,
0: I guess the other thing, and I think you've touched on it, but it's probably worth making uh, more explicit, and that is, it's always been my understanding that, that in terms of Foster's good offices on this, that uh, the industry really did not participate in. And really, the substance of what this thing contained—in other words, whether it was going to be ten million acres or forty million, whether it was going to be a two percent royalty or not a two percent royalty—they're going to pay it anyway. And what they needed was just legislation to clear off the pipeline. Or did they have have poly- not 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 Bill Foster in terms of? my personal interest, but institutionally in terms of the client,
1: did they? No, I don't any... remember ever seeing anything like that, but I, I, I do think that they would take positions from time to time, wherever they thought that an issue was headed in a place that it would sort of stop the bill from moving. I mean, in other words, there were some things that were, were happening, and occasionally I can remember things going on where they would just see that it was creating a political problem for the bill that it didn't need. But I don't think they had a policy perspective on the bill, no. Okay. Well. Well, what actually happens then, is, as we start
0: off into that summer of 71, as, as I've been able to, to recreate it, is that uh, in in early February, maybe even just about the time you were coming to town, Aspinall had introduced a bill that, that Ziegler had drafted from the previous year, which was, I think, HR 3100, if kind of you recall, yeah, right? which, which was just horrible. I mean, yeah. it had like half a million acres in yeah. it. And, And then along comes um, going again here, right there. All right. Uh, As I was saying, in February, Aspinall introduced this terrible bill. In April, the Nixon administration had sent their forty million acre bill up, and uh, because he was ironically, because he was the ranking. Republican uh, sailor had to introduce the administration bill, which he loathed. Yes. <laughs> right. And and uh, so as I believe that uh, that at the beginning of the markup, that Aspinall uh, then came in with sort of bill number two that was never actually introduced. It was a committee print, but it really is not important. I don't think. And other than that. As I understand, when you when you cut through the baloney, that the major thing that happened inside that market was that because Nixon had uh, committed to forty million acres and a billion dollars, and all the Republicans then to be good Nixonians had had to sign on with that bill, and other than Saylor, Wolf, or these people could actually bring them along, mm-hmm. and that gave. Meads, who was leading this charge for the reasons we really discussed on the other side mm-hmm. of the tape, he could put together the coalition with 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 Begich and some of the other Edmondson and these guys. Mm-hmm. and when you combine these things, that it gave them a slim but nevertheless working majority if, if the nut had to be cracked on mm-hmm. the subcommittee. Is is first of all is, is that analysis correct? And, and if so. Was there, do you recall, as a strategy, uh, like with Wolf and Begich and all these people? Wolf was the guy right there, congressional. Yeah, yeah. W- w- were there like meetings at the beginning at which everybody understood that this is what was going to go down? You or? mean conference meetings or well, outside meetings? Mean? I mean conference meetings, like sitting in Begich's office with, yeah. we're going to go into this markup and here's where these votes are and, and Wolf's in the room and Meads and, and we're putting together this coalition. I and mean, then how? How explicit did that?
1: Not very. I, I, don't, I don't think I can remember. I do remember, you know, somewhat of that group being together maybe once, but no, not many discussions being that explicit. I mean, Frank Wolf was in and out of the office all the time and talking about you know who he thought would stick with this thing and who wouldn't. needs and Baggage talked all the time. I talked with Steve Sander. We always had a good idea where various people were going. John Dellenbach, I said, was very helpful in doing some of that stuff. Edmondson was very helpful. Um, and but I don't recall sessions where all these interests got together. Okay. That, well the reason it might I might have been one. I mean I sort of have this recollection of one.
0: Right. Well the reason I asked specifically is that there is there is a markup
1: and I don't have the data
0: on it in front of me, but say say July. I and mean, this thing starts in I think June yeah. and they're you know they're flailing around about which bill we're gonna right, mark right, up right, and, right, and right. the thing. And Aspinall comes into one of these meetings like in, in around the fourth of July and he says, All right, you know, don't think I don't know what's going on here. I know that there are members of this subcommittee that have been meeting behind the back of Mr. Haley, our chairman, as if Haley is yeah. the guy that's insulted here. And I want and he puts everybody on notice, you know. I want everybody to understand that isn't the way we do things around here, and and if you think that this bill is going anywhere with that kind of uh, procedure. You got another thing coming. I've run this committee for twenty years, and yeah. that ain't the way we do it. But it was obvious to me reading that that, and, and I think actually I'd have to go back and look at my notes. But I think that Meads or Steiger or somebody they sort of been fessed up and said, well, you know, that wasn't really what we were doing, Mr. Chairman. We
1: were, but it was obviously that they had been caught, yeah, you know, <laughs> by Aspinall in terms of this cabal. That's why I say was Like there was one meeting like that. And I don't think it was in Nick's office, either. I mean, I think it was somewhere. God, I can't believe it. I wonder if that's in my notes somewhere. But, there, yeah, there was a... Ah, boy, the chronology is what's so hard to remember right now. But I've not more than one. I mean, I think other than that, it was all one-on-one. One on one. But there was a point at which Aspinall was so crappy about moving this thing. And this was after months of painstaking cooperation with Ziegler to try to work with them on all these issues and to try to do it, and then to have Aspinall just sort of making life miserable for everybody on the bill. Uh, When most people had sort of made up their minds sort of what the general shape of it was going to be, that there was a lot of frustration.
0: Well, I guess the the next thing that happens, as I understand it, is, is the... The strength of this coalition is exhibited in, in subtle but nevertheless explicit ways, and, and one of them, of course, is who's going to be the market bill. Right. You know, the, this is new Ziegler draft, right. which was, was called print, Committee Print Number One, right? Or the administration bill, and and they agreed, or Aspinall agreed under duress that well we'll mark up the administration bill, and then the response to that was then Aspinall, of course, comes back and I think. He had Ziegler prepare a list. I don't. know This is a level of detail right. you may not know, remember. It. Ziegler then prepared a list of like 35 amendments to the administration bill. And at that point, it all got called down, at least as I understand it. And the committee stops meeting, and this new beast called Committee Print Two, Two uh, which is the which is the thing that that the, com- the subcommittee eventually reports, is put together during. Uh, I guess most of July, maybe right. early beginning of August. Now, is I'm just telling you stuff that yeah. I've yeah. picked up off yeah. the paper. Is, is is that reasonably accurate with but your recollection? Yeah. And, and did you then, in terms of putting together this printing, this committee print number two, did you do that with Ziegler? Was there a negotiation on each of
1: these amendments? Uh, how did all that work? Well, I know I did a lot of it with Ziegler. I mean. Um, is is that the one that was finally marked up the committee print number? Two? Well, I, I don't I, remember the name of committee print. Right. Print. See, what
0: happens is, is they first they fight about what, what's the markup. Right. Name. Right. And then they then they decide that well the markup well it gets, it gets very procedurally complicated, but but eventually uh, it becomes clear where the votes are. Right. And the whole thing is pulled down. Right. And then there aren't any executive session right. meetings for right, like three right, weeks. Right. And then all of a sudden if you read the transcripts, they meet, and voila, we now have committee print two. Does everybody like this? Oh yes, we do. Whoosh. Yep. And we're gone. But, but they're obviously committee print two. What was the timing?
1: I'm trying to figure out how the discharge petition comes into this.
0: Well, that would have been, this was all in the subcommittee, because I want to ask right, you about right. this. And that would have been very early August by the time this process ended.
1: Right. Uh, actually. And then we didn't get back to it until. Interior committee transcripts from
0: those days. Uh, Executive session July 7th. Yeah, see, they have an executive session on July 7th, and then they don't have another one until August 3rd, and that's when committee print. Number two is unveiled, okay. so that's almost an entire month, <laughs> right? And then, and then they don't go to, uh, and then that is reintroduced uh, as the bill. See, the reason they had to reintroduce yeah. that bill was because this was Committee Print Two to the administration bill, and Saylor loathed the administration bill, so they didn't right. want to report a bill that Saylor hated. Right. So. Um, so then, Aspinall then reintroduced it, but that's committee print two, mm-hmm. right? and they didn't have a full committee, and then they moved it out, and then it, then it went on to the full committee. Now, I, it could have been that this discharge thing was to pressure to discharge it from the full committee, which would have been in, uh, in uh, early September. Uh, in fact, they didn't, uh, There's a memo for september 8th from what mcfarlane who was the staff right. director s- saying uh that we now have this new bill and uh approved by the subcommittee and this will be the first order of business when the full committee meets on the 16th so so summarizing that chronology hassle on the subcommittee until or s- until the. you haven't tracked
1: which the discharge petition related to
0: no i haven't done that. Yet. It would have to have been. You're discharging it from the committee. You went
1: through my note. Yeah.
0: It's not in there. It's not in there. The petition. All right. And it's covers. not. And it's not in. I mean, it was. It was. Was it ever filed? Or was it, never filed? No, no, it was never filed. No, no, never filed. Right. So, it's, see, it's not in the official. No, no, it wouldn't be. Committee records either.
1: But I, I, I feel pretty sure I took a copy of that service. And you know what I think I did. And there weren't copies, I mean, I don't think there were any copies. And what I'm wondering is, what I probably did is I was too smart and I put that thing somewhere because it was one of the great documents of the whole deal. (laughs) Well tell me, what was the point of the discharge? See, I can't remember myself whether it related to the subcommittee or the full committee, but fundamentally what happened was, and boy this was like fucking plotting to kill the czar. It was (laughs) was really rough. Let me let me just really strain to think how that worked. I think directly is Haley for substantially not a use. Even so, I think it related to the subcommittee. I think it related to the subcommittee. I wish I could be positive about that, but I mean, Aspinall controlled this thing, first of all Aspinall. Was, I mean, Haley was not in control. And Aspinall, I mean, the mood of it was Aspinall wanted essentially to settle it on the cheap. Aspinall's great interests in it, clearly to me, were- one settling on the cheek and two sort of extinguishment of the claims to a fairly well. I mean, he he and Ziegler agonized over how completely you could extinguish these things. And of course the, the you know the ugly spectre of termination was hovering around all of this. And these guys the, the sort of extinguishment termination deal was a big deal with Espiral. And, all. and he wanted to be subtle about it, He wanted to, but I mean, he wanted to do it, and he didn't want to spend a lot of federal money doing this. And so that was his big perspective. It wasn't dodging doing it, it was just keeping it cheap. And he saw the administration deal as clearly letting the horse out of the barn on the cost of this thing, and the expense of the settlement. And he was listening to people like, and I mean, this is a digression, but he was listening to the people, including people in the Western resource community that he dealt with, who just down in their hearts ran the native and said, "What are you doing?" I mean, this is a settlement that's going to screw up our dealings with Indians. It's going to commit federal resources to Indian justice, and it's bullshit. Don't there do is, it. There's actually a lot of discussion in these in these transcripts
0: about because all these other guys in the Indian community—they're all there because they got Indians in the district, and they're all watching, and this. they're all t- right. They're all saying, "We don't want to do anything here that's going to have our Indians coming back on us to let us 'Let's right. let's reopen our deals.'" Um, so that would be
1: consistent. Right. That? And so that was his deal. So my recollection with regard to this discharge thing is that Aspinall was constantly trying to keep this animal under control. And that what happened to that markup is that Aspinall saw the control slipping away. And, God, it's hard to remember what that... But I still think it's a subcommittee. But I know, I remember working intentionally with Ziegler during the period of time in which they adjourned, and there was a clear kind of a change on Aspinall's part that I mean, he saw that this bill was going to look a hell of a lot more like the administration bill, a hell of a lot more like what Lloyd Meads and Baggage wanted it to look like, than it was going to look like what he wanted it to look like. And so there was a lot of pushing and shoving, and when that committee print number two came out, it was not a horrible bill. I mean, it had a lot of the stuff that finally right. ultimately became the house building. Right. And um, I guess it was at that point, now how many markups were there after that? After it came out? Yeah. That was, they basically reported it was done. And what
0: was that markup like? Was that a short and sweet deal? Yeah, it was short and sweet, particularly because there's a, I don't want to divert you from this, because uh, one of the things that, that baggage does is he certifies that AFN has approved this with every cross T and dotted I. I don't know if you remember that, but I'll right. ask for that in a second. But, but once that was done, the only thing that happened on this August 3rd markup is everybody's patting themselves on the back to basically bless this done deal. So it would seemed to me, just from what you yeah. tell me now, that this struggle would have gone on in, in July when this thing was down off calendar and, and, you, and you were deciding how much
1: this print's going to look like the administration did. Um,
0: I've
1: I've I've written on this, and I, I've I've talked about this. And I can probably figure out when that discharge took place. But I mean, fundamentally, what happened, as I recall it, is that several of these members felt that Aspinall was not going to let this bill come out, that it was not going to get out. And um, what I can't remember is if it was in those final days before it came out of subcommittee. But the more I think about it, it must have been during that three or four weeks that the second the was put together. There was actually a document created, which was not. It wasn't so much intended that it would ever be served, but it was really the kind of thing where people, by signing up on it, indicated that they were willing to boot this bill out of committee, and they. I don't recall that they ever got a majority of the committee, or however many was recall was, was was necessary for a discharge, but they got all the right names on this thing. People signed it. And I don't think, I may be wrong, but I don't think Nick ever signed it. I mean, he obviously would have signed it, right. but I don't think he signed I mean, I don't think his name was actually on it. I'm not even sure Meade's name was on it, but there were a number of other people who I'm trying to think if it might not have been Republicans that were moving that there that it might have been somebody like Ed Edmonds, Ed Edmondson, or someone like that, who was actually carrying it or actually doing it. And I saw it. And what I'm wondering is if I took a copy of it, I might I might have seen it when it was done. But Aspinall found out about it. I mean, Aspinall got wind of the fact that this thing was going around. And at some point, Begich had a conversation with Aspinall about the fact that it was going around. And I think. The reason I think Nick signed it is he said, I haven't signed it, Mr. Chair. You know, the idea was I, right, I, I have to sign it. My hands are clean here. I'm just yeah, well, it. I'm just telling you, but it's around. And I mean, he was as much as telling him, I, I will sign it if I have to. But he said, I haven't signed it. I don't think it's necessary. But there really are a lot of people that want to see this bill out. And I certainly agree with him you know, that kind of deal. And I remember that Nick actually talked had an angry conversation with Aspinall about that thing. And then it disappeared. I mean, I, I'm not even sure the original may not even exist anymore. Do you we, know, would you have any uh, guess as to whose
0: idea that was? Mm-hmm. I mean, if it was coming out of Republicans, it could have been Wolf's
1: idea. You know, I it mean, wasn't Frank Wolf's idea. I'm sure, uh, yeah, I don't think Frank Wolf ever had an idea like that. Well, it's certainly, the administration did this. Jeez, I don't think the administration was pushing this bill. You know, I mean, they took their position, they ponyed up their forty million acres, and they had some people. But I. I don't remember anything about the administration's position that convinced me that they were advocating this. I mean, advocating it. Mean, like, well, I mean, really we want the bill. bill. It's our bill. We want right. the bill. Right. Well, I
0: asked both Bobby Kilberg and Brad Patterson about that. What well, did they say? Well, they said- well, they didn't put it in quite like that stark to terms, but, but they personally both from the White House were in the halls with Taos Blue Lake, do you remember that? I don't know that was oh, yeah. before your time, but that was- in the fall of 70, which which really yeah. led to the to this whole White House strategy, but they were actually, White House lobbyists, in the hall of the Senate, really hands-on doing this stuff, and I said, well, did you guys, because you brought the same vigor inside the White House to getting the administration committed, but then did you guys, as you did with, with Blue Lake, were like, they're heavy hitters then up in the halls and, on grand yeah. claims, and the answer was no, not to our recollection, certainly we did not go, it was just handled as a normal
1: interior congressional liaison. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And when Frank came around, <laughs> I mean, Frank was supportive, and he had to balance off Sailor versus, you know, other people. Let me see that bill again. I was going to look at the list of people oh. on it, because maybe it jogged my memory of the, of uh, people that... Uh... Yeah, there's some possibilities here that I can't, I mean, make, uh, aberrest,
0: that's certainly the kind of thing Aberesk <laughs> would do. <laughs>
1: yeah. But he was a wild man even then, I mean. Um, Edmunds, Edmondson Nick, Mink Aberesk, I think Edmondson I Edmondson. But I think Ed was the guy who you know, he was had even enough seniority at that time. That he wasn't really scared to death of asphalt, like a lot of those guys. He had a fair amount of seniority. He had the oil. He was the oil industry's main conduit in there, and had a fair amount of slack with those guys. And and uh, asphalt didn't run over Edmondson and Rollins and come over to him. But there were a number of people in this thing, and there were the right people, and it was clear that this thing had enough momentum that they could have discharged it if they absolutely had to. Hmm. And it, it, it's sort of like it had never been done to all. Well,
0: actually, just as an aside, uh, Lloyd Mead's told me today that the reason that this whole exercise is historic is that in terms of the, the revolution against the, the dinosaur hierarchy of the House of Representatives, he says this is the bill and this is the committee. But it's interesting. but this was the first time... To his knowledge sort of as a house historian oh, that right. eventually led to, the, you know, the 74 Watergate baby retooling of the house, which, you know, Lloyd said, well, maybe went too far. <laughs> but, but at the yeah. beginning of the revolution of putting a deal, you know, over the chairman, that independent of the merits of native land claims, that this was the first time... Does, he w- does Lloyd
1: that. say anything about this discharge thing? I didn't ask
0: him. He didn't bring it up, and I didn't ask him about
1: it. It's completely slipped my, my attention. Yeah, um, I don't have a strong recollection of Lloyd and Nick being the, the guys who, who, I mean, because they were sort of the players in the bill. It wasn't like, but um, that's sort of an interesting, I mean, Lloyd is certainly a real, he, he really cares about this history. And uh, I'm surprised, I'm, I'm worried I maybe taking a little too much credit for this bill. Although, given the fact that it was Aspinall and that it was sort of a, a, a ragtag group of people, including Meads and Baggage, who were nobodies, I mean, really, it is pretty significant that they did it well uh
0: one of the th- other things that happens the reason that, that before we get to conference the rest of it appears to go so easy is that uh, as i said on this on this august 3rd uh markup where committee print two which eventually becomes this right is unveiled and is given the seal of approval uh, begotts spends a lot of time explaining to everybody in front of aspinall that, as is, this is a fine deal, and that Don Wright and Aetham signed off on it. Now, that all comes, and I guess my first question would whether you remember all of this, is that apparently the day before, which was, which was August 2nd, that uh, Baggage called a meeting in his office, and apparently he had Don Wright and apparently Ramsey Clark uh, and brought Ziegler in, and that Ziegler made what, what was, was Viewed by everyone other than Ziegler, that I've talked to so far, is the absolutely astounding demand uh, that the chairman says that this is it. This is as far as he'll go. If you take this bill, if we mo- if we agree to move this bill out of subcommittee, you have to agree that there will be no substantive amendments. You will not push them in the full committee or on the House floor. And then where it got outrageous was, or in the Senate or in the conference. Yeah, I remember that. And sure did and uh, do you, what what was the story
1: well oh, i remember you, you guys
0: did you know that was coming Did uh...
1: no well no i i i remember seeing her doing that and 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 i mean it was astounding but i guess i'd worked with him so long it didn't surprise me at all i mean jesus asphalt by that time was so far beyond his outer limits for what he thought was necessary to do it i mean that, this violated every principal Aspinall had dealing with Indians. I mean, they were actually getting something approaching a reasonable deal here, and Aspinall was just, I think, I'm sure it was just nuts. And uh, I would love to know about the conversation between Aspinall and Ziegler, which they said, I don't know if Ziegler's still alive. He was a few years ago.
0: I have not been able, no one seems to know the answer to the location of Ziegler in Needless to say, the more I, we get into this, and I talk to more and more people, he used the main swing of oh, Aspinall. Hey, sure. and, oh,
1: he's the, he's the house guy. I, and I can't find them, you know? Uh, you can't? Nobody up there? Nobody
0: seems to know. I've gotten some leads. Uh, Frank Bracken gave me the name of the, of the minority staff director that he remembered. And I said he's still alive in town. And he might remember. I forget that guy's name. I down Let's call it the last number I have. Oh, OK.
1: okay. Now I got to quit telling lies about right. this. <laughs> Sunday, <but> you <laughs> thought I was the greatest guy.
0: <laughs> Well, uh, uh, anyways, I was—I think uh, before we turn the tape off, uh, most interesting liter- interlude there. Uh, we're talking about the, the fact that, uh, in uh, on Aspinall's behalf, that Ziegler had extorted, really, with the way everybody else describes it. This this promise, which which people viewed as out—well, actually, that's to be fair about it. They did not view it as outrageous with respect to the house. They thought that was a legitimate. Yeah. That so, you know, that was a legitimate part of the kind of negos- hardball yeah. negotiations that had been going on mm-hmm. all summer. But they were astounded, everyone. Uh, you had to hear Ed Weinberg talk about it, but the idea that that we would, that he would attempt to yeah. extort us into binding our hands in the Senate, the other body, was just beyond the protocol of this. Yeah. Which which would go to to the desperation of Aspinall in terms of losing control of mm-hmm. this whole thing. Um, so anyway, you remember all that, and, and had Aspinall ever. To your knowledge, have you done that sort of thing in any of
1: the other projects? I think? never know. No. We, we had no other projects. Okay. Baggage had no other priority in the interior. I mean, it was, he had sacrificed. I mean, it'd be interesting to look at his record to see whether they did anything else, but my recollection is he didn't ask for very much.
0: Okay. Well, once that agreement is made, this deal in a substantive sense. I mean, it still has a long procedural route in you know, the full yeah, committee yeah, yeah, yeah. and the rules committee and onto the floor. Yeah. But as far as the natives are concerned, it's basically, and the process is over, it's basically over. And that when it gets to the floor, there really aren't any, there's no action in an, in an Alaska native sense. However, <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: there so is that one little matter, yeah. Right,
0: there, is, there There was one party that was not in, in uh, present in the right in the room when Ziegler thought he extorted that promise, which was the environmental community. And and they obviously come out on the floor. First, I guess, uh, and I have not really researched this to the point that I should have, but as I understand it, in the committee process they had made a run with a Kylan Right. Which is basically sort of like what Udall Saylor became before, right, is that right. right? Yep, that's right. When did they show up in all of this? Were they always there, or did they come in
1: sort of late in the late. game? Late. Uh, that idea of, you know, getting this big environmental deal in really, really did come in late. I mean, I'd have to look at the hearings to see if people were advocating. I mean, it could well be that they were, and I just don't remember it as such a piece of I side action. But I but yeah. I don't remember any of that coming up. And it was never a part of the negotiations. I mean, it was a native land claims bill, a settlement act, and it just wasn't perceived. I mean, in fact, the whole notion of, <laughs> I mean, what, we all started to live with 17D2, but the whole notion of it wasn't even a part of the concept of the. So there they were. And what did, uh, do you recall what Begich thought of this? He was, he was nothing pissed him off more than this thing. He was irate about it. And he was irate about it mostly because he thought that this whole thing carried so much political freight anyway, and, and had the potential to be so contentious and so difficult to get accomplished politically, when he saw this thing coming down the path, I mean he just you know, I mean, Begich wasn't the world's greatest environmentalist to start with. I mean, he was a, sort of a classic environment- I mean, for, there weren't very many environmentalists in to speak of, when you come right down to it, and you know, in 1971, it wasn't exactly the golden age of environmentalism, and uh, Begich, I mean, I think, tried to be responsible on environmental votes, but it wasn't a big part of his platform. He was an education and social liberal. And, all of this and so, but he was outraged about this thing screwing up the bill. Do,
0: do you recall? Did uh,
1: did the enviros they come into his office and lay out their case? Or <laughs> I'm trying to remember who the enviro. I mean, I remember Sailor and Udall, but I can't remember who the who were the protagonists. Well, as here. I
0: said, I'm not. I haven't done my homework on this. Yeah. I should have. I think the Wilderness Society was was a heavy hitter in this. But I'm trying
1: to remember the people. Who, who were but, the people? Uh, um. I know that there were some people in last involved. I mean, Dave Hickok right. was involved, and Pete Kyleston was up on the scene at that time, and, and um, uh, Celia Hunter was on the scene at that time, and Bob Whedon was on the scene at that time. Those people I remember. But I don't remember people coming in and pitching Nick on this. I mean, he just felt trapped and victimized by this issue, like it was coming along. And so it wasn't so much that he just was against the idea of it as much as he was against the uh, uh, screwing up something that they would worked so long so you're almost you get to the there? finish line and, and then then all, all of a little sudden little. this deal and then plus remember the oil industry is there and so then you get foster really activated i mean all of a sudden they say jesus we've just cleared the decks for the pipeline and now here comes a major problem for us a negative in this building and so at that point foster was activated in a major way and was uh, working this thing tough and whispering in Nick's ear that this this you know, had the potential to undo this. Thing. Hmm. And plus, I can tell you, Stevens started to call at this point, too. I mean, this was one that got Stevens up off the map. And he wasn't very happy about it either. So I can remember communication between Baggage and Stevens at that point. So put the don't genie, send this
0: genie back in the bottle. I mean. Yeah, don't send this shit over here.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, now, how about uh, one of the leading guys in all of this was, uh, was Dingle. And one of the things that struck me. Later, uh, once I became involved myself on the Hill, is it like you know, with D two, of course, the way the Dingle played his hand is they got a sequential referral over there because this thing dealt with wildlife refuges, etc. And and it would seem to me that in terms of the jurisdiction, I mean, you were obviously you were giving out land inside wildlife refuges, even even if it was surface estate. I mean, there was obviously a jurisdictional yep. hook to have gotten to have allowed. Uh, Dingle to it again. I believe he was chairman of the, of the Fish and Wildlife Subcommittee in those days, so over local Merchant Marine. Mm, yeah, I guess that's right. And how come? Did, did you see those guys during the committee process? Did, did you ever see, remember Dingle and
1: mm-hmm. uh, any of those people? They never... No. Nope. I, I remember this whole, the whole Alaska 17D2 deal as t- just a floor deal. How
0: how big a floor deal was it? I mean, was this like you really have the industry out in the halls and you, I mean, oh, who, yeah, this who be, I mean who beat the enviros? I mean, was it the industry and the administration, or the was was it a native lobby on it? Uh,
1: well, my recollection is, that first of all, there wasn't a lot of time. I mean, you know, it was really I don't remember when uh, exactly when the uh, udall Sailor thing you know, sort of emerged, but it can't have emerged in any form you could look at until very shortly before this thing got to the floor. And uh, I remember sort of everybody at that point kind of participated in this. And you could participate, I mean, just, it, w- it was a struggle, and of course it was very difficult for Nick, because what it was doing was it was breaking off on that note a whole lot of the people that he had cultivated and he was cashing chips left and right. I mean, these it ultimately became you know i mean ultimately it turned out that the settlement itself was a cakewalk you know nick had prepared himself for whatever fight would come along and the idea of the settlement and what finally came out after it was all done was just a non-event this became the event so nick's chips to the extent that he had accumulated them were you know mostly cashed on this amendment I'm and telling I, all these guys that he'd been cultivating don't so screw, no vote. Don't either. screw the bill up. We. This is not the right. I mean, and what Nick was not saying is we can't do this in Alaska. It's impossible to do it. It Was really this screws this bill up? It's not a part of this bill. It should have been raised earlier, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Sailor, of course, was not a particularly well liked person. Nick was incredibly angry at Udall for doing this. Do you recall there ever being in a meet up, meetings with Udall about this? No. Um. But I know there were some angry exchanges. I mean, I know there were some. I know there were some angry exchanges between Nick and Udall about this, and I know that they argued, and, and Nick said some incredibly sort of crappy things about Udall in this deal, opportunistic kind of deal. And uh, yeah, I'd love. I can't remember the vote. I mean, I can't remember. I mean, I know what happened, right. but I can't remember how they split. But I remember it was really difficult because a lot of Nick. Nick was a down in the trenches liberal. And on most votes, except the last, he tried to be a good environmentalist, he tried to be good on social issues and so on, but it um, he, he really killed him to see so many of his friends doing what he thought hurt him on this bill. Yeah. And then if you read the debate, you know, the floor debate of this, was, I thought was interesting because yeah. a lot of stuff goes on on the floor that is uh, um, really, uh, uh, you know, posturing and obviously bullshit, but the affection for Nick. Was absolutely genuine. Carl, I don't know if you remember what Carl Albert did, but Carl Albert actually came down. The speaker came down to the floor, and in a completely spontaneous deal, gave Nick about the greatest tribute. I mean, he said, "I've never seen a member, a new member of this house, come in, work so indefatigably, so effectively, establish himself so well, learn issues, learn how the house works." I mean, just sort of. He said, "This is the greatest son of a bitch." And and a number of other members did the same yeah, thing. Yeah, you'd all actually
0: do the same thing. Yes,
1: that's the trouble with the record. Of course, you can't you can't see it. You, you use yeah. the transcript and
0: see. You don't really see the. Well,
1: some of them were 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 you know just just window dressing. But the speakers was clearly. I mean, Albert didn't have to do that. And I mean, he he came down and just heaped praise on Begich, And it was absolutely genuine. And there were a number of others of those tributes that were were clearly heartfelt. I mean, they really admired the fact that Nick had. I mean, regardless of all the great work that, that uh, Mead's ever been, and people understood that Nick had sort of steered this incredibly rocky course uh, with Aspinall and all these other people and somehow got this bill that was his and his alone. I mean, the nation as a whole didn't really care about the Alaskan natives, and it was sort of his deal to get through all these, these uh, deals, and boy, people, it was really a, a neat deal for him.
0: Actually, you just reminded me of of, uh, the last question I'll ask before we move on to the conference, and that is in Alaska, of course, this is a very big deal, even to this day, and everybody views that their problems, you know, the Alaska syndrome, our problems are the nation's, blah, blah, blah. But but it has been my perception that that the reason that all this stuff had to be fought out in committee is that regardless of, of Arthur Goldberg going on the Today show and telling America about what a bunch of sad-sex natives were, but as a practical matter, this was really normal committee sort of kind of legislation. There was no big national constituency out there for this, or was there? I mean, is that... None. I mean,
1: Ramsey Clark and Ken Bass would have had you think that you were sort of making Indian, timeless Indian policy, and that. I mean, and you were, I mean, in that sense. I mean, in an intellectual sense, you were. But but the people all over the country were watching to see how this was done. But, gee, I mean, I don't remember Bill Byler. I mean, you right. interviewed Bill, and Bill is, I mean, theoretically, represented the national Indian interest at the time. And he was around, and there were people like that who reflected national orientation. But you didn't get any feeling that beyond the Indian community itself, there was much... I mean, like, D2 was like an authentic national lobby. I mean, there were people out yeah. there, I mean, during our D2. Interview. Well, you, mean, you know this... Like, it wasn't like that. It you know, like, Otto Lowe. You know, know. You know and Otto Low. I mean, I never quite got how he fit, but, I mean, he was a guy who liked to ride through the native window in order to get bond business and and and, and uh, commercial finance business, you know, and figured that was his portfolio, and I always got the feeling that Otto had a uh, you know, a pretty good striving that he, he was, had bona fides in terms of how he felt about it. He wasn't just a crass guy. But so there was some interest in that sense. I assume there were a few people up in New York who gave a shit that a billion dollars over a period of time was going to be transferred into, you know, new hands and right. that always catches their attention. Right. But uh, other than that, I mean, uh, and maybe other than that's minimizing it too much, but I didn't get
0: much of feeling. Okay, well, the, the one other thing that you just reminded me of by mentioning Bill Byler that I forgot to ask is that it was on Byler's recommendation and with Byler's money through the Association of American Indian Affairs that AFN during that process hired this mysterious figure, Claude Desitels. Do you remember Claude Desitels? Claude Desitels. yes. And as near as I could figure out, sort of like, you know, is Lou Ziegler alive or dead and no one seems to know the answer, you asked the question, well, what did Claude do? And nobody seems to know she the answer, did uh, but was he a hitter with Aspinall? Do you remember him at all? Yeah,
1: like I? I remember Claude Desitels. Shit, he was just like Adrian Parmiter to me. I mean, he didn't do anything. I mean, I remember, but
0: he, did you remember him as being a, off this issue? Was he a fixture on the committee at all? Do you, mm-hmm. Why would anyone have thought that he would be?
1: No. Okay. No. Yeah. He was a he was a kind of a I was I guess in my perception he was kind of a fringe Indian player I mean. How old was he at the time? Was he an old guy like Aspinall? Or no, he was a, well not he wasn't a young guy. Yeah, he was fifty. He was sort of a Zigler sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Another
0: guy I will to look for him in your role, i let you off the hook. I bet you Ziggler,
1: I'm trying to think about you. Yeah, you could probably pull one of these old bios. But Ziggler, Jesus, that's 1970. 20 years. Right. Yeah,
0: Ziegler's probably about 70 and 75. Oh, well, you know how Ziegler got to the department. Ziegler came into the department. Dylan Meyer, Harry Truman appointed Dylan Meyer Commissioner of Indian Affairs in like 51 because Dylan had done such a good job rounding up the Japanese and running the war Yeah, you spoke really this. That he'd you'd be a perfect commissioner of Indian Affairs. And Lou had been his lawyer. Yeah. Lou was Dylan Meyer's he was chief counsel of the World Relocation Authority. Oh my God. And so he brought he came into the Interior Department with Dylan Meyer in fifty one. So he had to be in fifty one, you know, and he'd been general counsel of the World Relocation Authority. So even if he was a wunderkind, he still had to get out of law school and, you know to To have done that during the Second World War, so uh, you know he had to be. You know, I mean, my father, if he was still alive, would be in his late seventies, and he was you know sort of a college guy during the Second World War. He couldn't have been out
1: of law school and had risen up. Yeah. So Ziegler's could be pushing eighty. I mean, yeah, he could well be. Uh, one thing just came to mind. This is just a free-floating recollection, but one thing and I don't know whether you're going to get in the book into any of the. Are you going to talk about the concepts of the settlement? I mean, yeah, the, sure. But well, I'm going to ask you about that in the, at the end of this, actually. But go ahead. Uh, go. Well, There's I was just going to say, one thought. thing that comes comes to mind right now is that, you know, you're talking about, that when I said, he sort of had these, these, I mean, he wanted to settle on a cheap and he basically wanted to make sure that it was extinguished. I'd say those that was what really motivated him. But they had a lot of, and this might have been Ziegler, uh, but they had a lot of policy ideas about what this bill should say. And one of them I remember thinking that the, the Natives really fell into the trap on is that, remember the old free-floating versus village selection deal? And I don't remember exactly how the natives think that got resolved, but I know Aspinall and Ziegler was delighted when the natives started to come around to the idea of village selections, because he hated the idea of any free-floating selections. And they even talked about having just almost a, I mean, they almost always have a reservation you can select, but only here, you know, given the mountaintops. And so then when the natives came back and said, well, we've we got to have the land around our village. And there, remember, there were a few natives, smarter ones probably in some sense. They said we should have a lot of free-floating, very minimal village selections, and lots of free-floating selections. And time out. No way Aspinall's going for that. He, he, the minute they said we want land around the village, they said it's all going to be around the villages. And then I remember having these long, painful discussions with Ziegler about them coniguity and compactness, you know, and all those concepts. But I just want to mention to you that there's one where a guy like Ziegler, I think, just absolutely called a tune on what the final bill looked like. And guys like Katz and me could work with the Native lawyers and screw around a little bit with how that worked. But fundamentally, Lou was going to make those just as tight as possible.
0: Right. Well, that uh, that does actually, where well that comes into, well, actually, one last thing before we off of this and that is that it seems to me that a lot of the motivation that Aspinall seems to have had for that kind of attitude on the record is that he was very concerned that, that this shenanigan uh, not really bend the state to its knees with respect to the state lands for those kinds of free-floating economic purposes. I and mean, that. Again, as a Bill concept, does that stick not, in your mind? You mean not bring
1: the state to its knees, not take away the state's capability? Right, the state's land oh, yeah. and... Aspinall took a strong pro-state position. So Havelock and Egan, of course Egan was probably made in heaven to lobby Aspinall. I mean, if you ever wanted a guy to lobby Aspinall, Bill Egan was the guy. I mean, they were like soulmates. These little old Western farts, you know, who were both aged and crotchety little shits, you know, I mean, and, and Egan, in lots of ways, was Aspinall's equal. He was maybe a smart, or you know, wily at least. Right. <laughs> and uh, so they got along great. And whenever Havelock, and you know, Havelock was sort of oil and water with Aspinall's style, but Havelock and Egan were very effective mm-hmm. with Aspinall. And they would just come in and say, well, Jesus, I mean, the we'll state has rights here, and Aspinall's said, so, you damn right you've got rights. So then,
0: sort of Egan and Aspinall have the same sort of uh, political culture and social culture yeah,
1: political cultures. And they were the same type of guys. They were, you know, they were obviously practical politicians who really liked to have their own way. And 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 Aspinall was a states rights guy. I mean, he was not about to let a bunch of native Aborig- you know, aboriginals come in and sort of undermine what the state thought it had. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, that actually finally does bring us to the conference. Yeah. And
0: uh, what I know about the conference is that it was physically took place, I guess, in the ground floor, the Capitol building, or there wasn't one of the House or Senate yeah. offices in. And in terms of, of the team, first of all, early on, uh, I see stuff where Begich says, well, I'm not going to get to be a conferee because Mr. Aspinall has told me that there's nothing personal, but freshmen never get to do anything yes, and that That's city. right. And by the end of this process, uh, Begich gets to participate in the conference. Yeah. Now, how did, uh,
1: was that a goal of Begich's? How did he pull that off? Oh, know? yeah. I mean, from the beginning, I mean, Nick, I mean, he, you know, tried to be nicey-nice with, uh, with Aspinall, but, I mean, he was really outraged. But, you know, it sort of doesn't ring true now, but in those days, you know, freshmen didn't do any of that stuff. Just didn't do it. And uh, so Nick was accepting, but, uh, but upset, but in practical fact. I think Aspinall got a little, a li- he got concerned about Stevens and Grimmel. I mean, he got in there, and I can't remember the conferees, but Ed Edmondson was a conferee, and Meads was a conferee, wasn't he, and, and uh, Sailor, and Udall, uh, and uh, I was trying to think were there any- another Republican, uh, Mans- it was not a big conference, right. it's like seven at the most, I think. So it would be Aspinall, Edmondson, Meads, and maybe Roy Taylor, or maybe... Um, Actually, I didn't. Haley, maybe Haley. Oh yeah, Haley. And uh, but it was only it was only seven to nine house members, and uh, I think uh, Zig. I remember staying, of course, in real close contact with Ziegler uh, on all that, working through stuff each you know each night, uh, working through things, and uh, he he was at that point Lou was not collegial, but he was at least sort of at least. Uh, open. I mean, hmm. he would at least sort of share information, uh, if pressed. And I think that Aspinall got nervous about Stevens and Gravel, to be perfectly honest. Hmm. wanted some help to hold that. Well, not so much political help, but he just, Nick knew so much, hmm. and he had so much knowledge, and Stevens and Gravel made endless assertions about things that had to happen for the state, and Aspinall, I think, started to feel just a little bit kind of handicapped by the fact that he had no Alaska presence. Hmm. Now, he was talking with Nick, but it wasn't the same as having him there Right. Well,
0: now, in terms of uh, sort of the conference committee as a markup kind of drill, um, was it closed in that, but for the, the conferees and probably Ziegler and Van Est,
1: was there but you and Katz and the rest of the guys get in the door? Or I can't speak for Katz because the Senate had a different approach to it. I did not. And uh, there were no member staff in there. Okay. Nick wasn't there. I sure as hell wasn't there. And uh, as far as I know, Ziegler was just pretty much it. Now Udall may have. T- I mean, uh, Saylor may have taken swing there. But. Okay. Uh, the. It
0: seems to me that the that the ball game, in a certain sense, in terms of the concepts that we all then had to have live, lived with for the last 20 years, that, that many of those concepts uh, were settled because when the conferees got there. Uh, The first thing they did was they elected jointly Aspinall to be the chairman of the conference. Now, I've talked to Meads about that. I haven't talked to Van yet, but he tells me that that was pro forma because they do it like ping-pong. When when the two committees conference, one time Scoop would be chairman, the next time Aspinall would be chairman. And it just so happened, it just came up on the draw that Aspinall got to be chairman. But But the major thing they did off the bat was that the conference agreed to use your house bill as the market vehicle. Mm-hmm. And you know, having been in the game enough myself to know if you let me use my bill to be the market vehicle where we're then gonna negotiate the rest of our problems, I'm I'm seventy five percent of my way home. Uh, and, and that was yeah. like a it seems yeah, it to was. me, procedurally, a major event in terms of the decision making right. process of the conference. Do you remember it as such? Were well, there were, was were there delegation meetings about that or how did that?
1: I don't remember any delegation meetings about that. And I, yeah, you know, you better ask Bill because I don't think I really have a clear recollection, but I know it was perceived as, I'll just give you my, my perception is for some reason, and Bill will probably dispute this, I have this vague recollection that somehow there was a feeling that the House bill was, was somehow a sort of a more complete statement of the whole deal. Had more elements and more, and so that it was it was comfortable to do it that way. I wouldn't. i hesitate to say it's better, uh-huh. but it was sort of a more comprehensive treatment of all of the issues. Almost that uh, that uh, Ziegler had done a better job. Of yeah, no, that's exactly right. That, that ultimately, when it all got done, and a lot of it he was forced to do, that Ziegler had you know sort of done a more complete, detailed job. I wouldn't expect Bill to agree with that, but uh, it may be that just. Aspinall was just such an asshole that they had to do it that way. Right. So well, Meads' recollection of Wordsworth is just,
0: uh, he couldn't really remember it. And mean, he agreed it was an important yeah. event, but that he thought it was more of time was growing short and every everything possible had to be done to keep Aspinall in the game. And, and Aspinall made it a big they deal and so. Yeah. so to keep him happy. And you got to remember also that Jackson's
1: off running for president at this
0: point. That's yeah. what I was
1: going to say. Scoop.
0: You know, I was going paying I, kind of
1: attention to this. I, I remember that. But I didn't remember that, yeah, it was the presidential deal, but Scoop clearly was not a major player at all points in that conference, and that that may be the better explanation. Yeah, well, I mean, Van S obviously, is the best witness yeah, on, yeah. on that one.
0: Well, the two things really- well, first of all, what kind of- it's, it seems to me that the there's lots of interest in this in Alaska, and I don't know whether we've really talked this afternoon enough about the kind of pressures through this whole process that might have been coming down on on Begich in the office from all quarters in in Alaska. where did was were there guys coming, you know, with Jinberg from Ketchikan and all these Atwood and all these you know, were these guys descending on your head at this point? I mean, this is the big finish, uh, and this has all been pretty
1: bitter. Um, You know, I may have just washed it out or Nick saved me from it or something, but I don't remember. I mean, I I sensed, I mean, whenever I went up there, when I talked to people, this tremendous, you know, kind of background of fuck the natives, you know, Jesus Christ. But I don't remember a lot of lobbying. I mean, I remember just, there was a whole, the whole background was screw the natives, this is too generous in there, this is a ripoff, blah, blah, blah. And nobody, Jesus, you never met anybody who, who could see that a billion dollars was shipped into the state. used should say to people, this is the greatest public works deal of all time.